0: Matthew Gates, Integrated Pest Management Specialist of 11 years, focusing on holistic, sustainable, ecological, conscientious IPM.
1: We must
2: work untiringly so that our children are obliged to learn the truth, because it is only through knowledge
1: that we can safely. Listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Special thanks to our current annual educational event sponsors, including the Workshop, CBD National, and Green Earth Medicinals. If you want to learn more about our Curious About Cannabis events, go to cacpodcast.com/events. And if your company would like to become an event sponsor, visit cacpodcast.com/sponsors to learn more.
2: Hey everybody. This is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Today, I'm really, really stoked to be catching up with somebody whose content I've been following for for quite a while and revolves around a topic that we don't really talk about too much on the podcast. I'm really excited to dive into it, but I'm here with Matthew Gates, um, the purveyor of knowledge about all things integrated pest management. Uh, Matthew, thanks so much for being willing to take the time today to come on the podcast.
0: I really appreciate you having me on, Jason. I really like the content that you talk about.
2: Oh, thanks. I really appreciate that, and and likewise, I really, you know, one the reason why I've gravitated towards you is um, I can tell that you have a passion for sharing and teaching, and between your YouTube channel and and other stuff that you do, I've really um, appreciated all the information that you've been sharing. And your Instagram you've got some. You always uh, share some great um infographics from like research papers and stuff to really drive home different points um so yeah i'm stoked to connect with you really really excited
0: yeah i um like you say it is a very big passion of mine uh it's very important for me that people i like to often talk about sort of the heady advanced topics as well certainly um because i feel like the sort of the devil is in the details with that Mm
2: -hmm.
0: i think i think it does help to talk about some of the technical stuff but um, at the same time, uh, I've never lost my passion for talking about sort of um, sort of expanding on that, breaking that down, and showing why it is that something sort of abstract like resistance to pests is what it is, or or how you know plant physiology breaks down into molecules and genes and how those interact and confer the benefits that we often see with like the microbiome, for example. That that's yes. very in vogue and more people are interested in um kind of uh kind of explain the magic behind it is uh important to me
2: exactly yeah yeah absolutely kind of peel back the curtain and and show you know how all of this stuff is is happening and and before we we get into all the details i wanted to hear just how did your how did you kind of fall into this kind of niche that you find yourself in today um have you always been kind of um you know, interested in how um, kind of the ecology of of cultivation environments and that sort of thing work. And, you know, that kind of has led into this world of of looking at the interface between animals and microbiology and all these sort of things. But where's that passion come from? And how did you kind of get into what you're doing today?
0: So I always like to tell the story of um, uh, Satoshi Tajiri, who is, for those who know, uh, the creator of Pokemon or perhaps one of them when I was a very young child, um, in preschool, I re- I have, a I have some, some fond memories of playing the first-generation Pokemon, Pokemon. Oh, yes. That. Yes. A- and, um, I'm not saying I had that passion and interest way before that, uh, from what even, from what I can remember, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, uh, certainly I feel like having that virtual space to kind of cement those ideas. Uh, you know, and especially some some of the facts that like the the creator of that series even uh was was a bug catcher type person, just going around in yep. caves. That's how we got the idea for this, you know, multi billion dollar uh yeah. title. And I think it taps into something that a lot of people have, not just myself uh, uniquely, but many people as a sort of interest in the natural scape in the world. And mm-hmm. um, I think that allowed me to kind of hone, in a way, some of my analytical like uh, desires at a young age. Uh, and I've always had this sort of passion for nature. I was a, a Boy Scout. Uh, I am an Eagle Scout for those who um, care about such nice. things. I, I, uh, so as a, as a young boy, I would go up to mountaintops like Mount Whitney and uh, Half Dome and Yosemite, um, you know, at 12, 13, you know, and uh, going on these other sorts of excursions. And in my teenage years, Uh, for probably since I was about 14 or 15, I come from a military family. And so I thought that maybe taking some of this wilderness perspective or some of these things that I liked, I could maybe transfer that to something like the U S army or something like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but I did not actually end up going that route. And there's a, a couple of different reasons for that. But, um, at the end of the day, I decided that I probably could do the most good elsewise, And so I ended up going with my first passion and perhaps on my second passion, um and so I think that that has been very uh, enriching for myself and other people as well um so that kind of covers up you know very 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 briefly kind of my interests my major interests uh from a professional perspective up to my young adulthood and then um you know since about uh so it's eleven years now, so eleven years ago. Yeah. I started, I started doing cultivation work, not just in cannabis, but in also other like vegetable crops and okay. ornamental crops, um, uh, up until very recently, had a very long standing relationship with a, a company that grew, um, uh, they're responsible for putting poinsettias on the map and uh, ornamentals, and Ecker, Eki Farms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I worked with them for a very long time. And while I was doing that, I was also working uh, with other cultivators and and cannabis as well. This is when I first started working mm-hmm. in cannabis as well. But I really started to pivot probably in the last five years or so. You know, really, has been my main focus uh, for many reasons. Um, part of it's economical. Uh, yeah. Not to bring that up first, but of course, uh, a, a, a cash crop, so to speak. And, and one that also, you know, as, as a person who um, uh, consumes and uses it for myself, I think it's very important for, for that to be supported, right? And I felt yeah, like there, yeah. was a, there was a dearth of information about IPM and things like that. Uh, uh, I have a funny story of um, my friend up in the high deserts, uh, his uncle coming around and saying, and I'm being introduced to him, from my, my, my best friend. And he says, oh, we worked with bugs or pests. I don't get any pests. I just spray my, my pants with malathion. <laughs> and I'm just like, that's very uh... bad seek help and um, find
2: alternatives (laughs) immediately (laughs) immediately. Yes.
0: Um, and, uh, so, you know, that kind of, it sort of kills me. It's funny, but it's also kind of unfortunate. And, um, so that's why it's so important to me to help as many people as possible at the home grower level, but also at the professional level as well. And um, I felt like more and more people could utilize that information as cannabis becomes even even more uh, uh, important as the crops grow and um, yep. all the different ways, shapes, and forms that it does. Uh, biosecurity and and having that sort of mindset, but also keeping in mind sustainable practices and and the holism of it uh, is very important to me. So I try to I try to balance those uh, very important points for people.
2: Yeah, and you know, and and right off the bat. For anyone that you know is is not so familiar with integrated pest management and kind of where this is all coming from, yeah, you know, just to briefly state, like this is integrated pest management is is one of these you know kind of foundational systems that you want to um, you kind of like have planned at the beginning because it provides you with all of these tools to avoid jumping straight to applying you know uh, harsh pesticides or something like that. And uh, this is something that I, you know, I think about a lot, too, because when I am originally from Mississippi, but I've been out in Oregon for quite a while now. When I first moved out here, I worked on some permaculture farms, you know, trying to learn, you know, what are these alternative ways to grow things without having to, you know, use um, harsh chemicals all the time and the implications of that in supply chains and and our lives and health and everything else. Um so I really like that, you know, um you tend to point that out that 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 role um that this isn't, you know, that there's a lot of opportunity here. Um if you can understand some of the science around integrated pest management and these dynamics to be able to free yourself from um you know, these cycles that oftentimes cultivators get in of just finding their products that work, you know, their sprays that they, uh, you know, will use in, you know, and then sacrificing the health of the soil ecology and all these other things, uh, nearby water system ecologies and everything else. So, I really, really appreciate that. So I think um, we can just dive in. When you hear this term integrated pest management, how do you conceptualize? that term and in thinking about how that applies to a cultivation environment. Because I think people sometimes have slightly different conceptions. I think it's good to start with that. Absolutely.
0: And, um, you know, depending on who you talk to, some people would even make the argument, and I think it's not a not necessarily incorrect or inaccurate to say that a lot of aspects of IPM are still kind of new uh, yeah, to a lot yeah. of people, even though sort of some of the mm-hmm what you might call like modern or modern concepts of, uh, of integrated pest management, even are like 30 years old or possibly even older than I am. And, and certainly right. people are quick to point out that like, certainly the concept of controlling pests is older than that, right? But, but <laughs> yeah. uh, um, uh, you know, kind of, I think that like the basics is that, that uh, people would have this sort of like, these different techniques that would be kind of classified by what they do and how they accomplish the treatments, So like biocontrols or biological controls are obviously biotic agents, uh, you know, chemical controls are chemicals, obviously physical controls are a little bit more nuanced. Those are like barriers and, and things that kill physically, like ultraviolet radiation could mm. be considered like a physical control, uh, you know, cause it's not a chemical, right? It's not a biological agent. Yeah. Um, and then cultural controls and things like that. But for me, uh, I always say that I, practice a holistic ipm
2: mm-hmm.
0: and i am very um I, i'm very uh specific when i say that i mean it what what i mean is that um you know not all techniques are made the same and certainly not all techniques are warranted and a lot of this is contextual or data driven yeah. um especially once we start delving into some of the um the sort of the rabbit holes about things like uh like plant soil feedback concepts mm-hmm. about, um, you know, high, high minded concepts like the hollow genome theory of evolution, you know, talks about how, you know, if you kind of reduce this all to barcodes, I like to say, you know, it's yeah. all the genes, genes of all, all the genomes of all the organisms in a set, set space interacting with each other. Right.
2: Yeah.
0: It, and uh, that gets very complicated very quickly. <laughs> but, very. um when you're applying things like microbes and insects, I think that people, I think people have been reverenced, for example, for cannabis, or for the, for the plants themselves, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, certainly ecology is so important. And what we learn from ecological studies and research tells us, uh, you know, some, some techniques make more sense in these contexts and other times it doesn't. And I, I think that I've learned most of all that, um, uh, as much as we like to do it, we shouldn't oversimplify too much. Sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. And sometimes certain contexts don't matter. But in other cases, I think people don't give the requisite amount of, of um, credence. And actually, that's something that I, I want to echo back again towards you, is that uh, I think you often focus on logistics or um, dynamics that uh, are, don't get a lot of attention because they're maybe not as attractive to talk about, but they're <laughs> yeah. uh, also important.
2: Yeah, and and actually, I think that's a really good segue into something that I had in mind when I was thinking about this, uh, you know, the concept of integrated pest management, like what are some, you know, if someone came to you and said, I'm trying to wrap my head around all of this stuff, and I'm just starting out, what are some of the core scientific concepts that you think right away, people should be diving into and trying to get educated on so that they Aren't just regurgitating things that they read on forums and stuff, but they're actually thinking critically about what they're doing in their cultivation environment and how they're setting up these IPM strategies. I like
0: how you phrase that question. I would say um, ecology is a big one. Like I've just mentioned, it's kind of all-encompassing because that will also encounter that will like ecological theory, um, even in sort of a basic sort of form. Like right. people talk about succession theory or, you know, how, how certain mm-hmm. types of plants will succeed in, in various environments that have been, um, you know, up uh, overturned or, or, or disrupted, right? Yeah. Um, evolutionary theory, of course, uh, sort of ideas about, and even like deep evolutionary ideas mm-hmm. about how certain groups of organisms even got their start. Of course, you don't know everything with regards to that, but those contexts, even something as simple as like... Um, Uh, I was just posting recently on Instagram about, uh, the last universal cellular ancestor and, uh, and also ideas that like, you know, it's crazy to think about it, but like the aerobic cellular, uh, uh, processes of the body, you know, those evolved from anaerobic microbes. Yeah. Long, even longer ago, right? And, And those systems, we inherited those. And of course they've had a long time to adapt. Don't get me wrong, of course, but. Um, You know, just you keep these things in your head and like viruses, for example, the the, also the Luca article I was talking about was like the virum of it. So I I guess I'm getting a little bit in the weeds, but just having an appreciation for some of these biological uh, frameworks kind of allows you to understand how complex it really is. And I'm also very passionate about how, you know, when people are trying to assess, like, does this product make sense to apply? do these microbes make sense to utilize, um, you know, show me the data, show me the research yeah, yep. that shows that that actually is the case. And that the claims that people are making about products and services are um, copacetic, yep. I, you know, I don't want to tell, say that people are all out here lying. Um, I can misspeak mm-hmm. and yeah. still be wrong, for example, just always check, you know, cause maybe somebody said something or maybe you misinterpreted or, you know, just always- Trust and verify. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, that's maybe kind of a, a bit of a skeptic when it comes to, you know, just various processes. But it's just because I've been, I've been not scammed, but I've I've misinterpreted mm-hmm. things and have made costly mistakes. And anyone who has for a certain amount of time, it becomes statistically likely that this
2: will happen. I mean, that's how Especially. you learn, right? 100%. Make mistakes and, and figure out why the mistakes happen the way they did. Exactly. So- and so, do you mind diving so, into some of the uh, not to cut you off, I'm sorry there's a little no, of no. a delay, but we'll come back around to it. But I want to hear some of your stories on uh some of these things that that kind of led you astray.
0: So I think a lot of people know that I have a bit of a discrepancy with regards to some claims that people have made about um uh like resistance or some people like for example, some people don't aren't even aware of like the like the pathology of certain pathogens, for example, mm-hmm. like a big one in cannabis is uh you know is powdery mildew systemic is a question yeah. asked oftentimes right mm-hmm. and um you know i I'm, I'm quick to point out that uh, although it maybe I think I've even read in one or two papers that there's like one example of an organism of a powdery mildew species that is not not even like systemic in the way that they mean it, but maybe yeah. it goes a little bit deeper, but in all cases it's a it's a um it's a uh, uh, epiphyte,
1: you know, yeah, it grows on yeah. the
0: surface and that sort yeah. of thing. The reason why it's infecting so dang much is that it's just very good at doing reinfecting of yeah, the host and other host. Yeah, yeah, that's all it is. Things like that. Another one uh, is that um, the idea that like uh, insects don't have the enzymes to break down like sugars and plant mm-hmm. defenses I've I've always found it a little bit contentious and definitely at odds with the ecological literature that I'm aware of. uh, Mm -hmm. That's very recent. um, That like this sort of dynamic can be very, very complicated. Um, You know, you can get like strains of pathogens that are more virulent than others. Um, You can likewise get individual plants that are also more or less susceptible. But when people say resistant or susceptible, that's actually That's predicated on so much. And if you don't actually know what's causing it, then like environmentally and also genetically, then what are you really saying that you're actually aware of? Is kind of my question.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, something I wondered about and still wonder about today um, because of some of my old research when I was in grad school is around the um, different like soil inoculant uh, recipes that, that float around uh, just because I, I didn't do a ton of work on it, but some of my work was around mycorrhizal fungi and particularly looking in, uh, uh, you know, we were looking in native plant ecosystems and seeing how some of the interactions that happen, you know. And so I, I had a lot of skepticism when I would hear people make all of these claims about what they were doing with mycorrhizal fungi. And I'm like, there's just so much that's going on in the root zone that, you know, it, and it and it's hard to measure too, like doing these research studies, it takes a lot of controls and things. And so it's easy to deceive yourself, you know, to grow some yes. plots and you know, you apply things, you're like, look, these plants look better. And it's like, well, wait a minute, did you even like did you have you measured the pH across that whole field? Have you done you know, there's very basic things that yeah, make one just ask a lot. I just have a lot of questions. I'm not necessarily saying it's not working. I just want to understand it. Um and it's it's complicated stuff i like
0: yeah absolutely um and even like um back to ecological theory like the idea of a symbiont or symbiosis yes yeah like like, you know i'm very pedantic about this point but symbiosis doesn't mean the good stuff it actually just means the interaction so there are good (laughs) symbioses and bad symbioses we call those parasitic interactions and mutualistic interactions, yeah. right? And, and um, you know, n- uh, not respectively. And, um, uh, you know, like those are also, those are mediated by things that happen. So, like you, you run into situations where like, like you're saying, I'm curious about your, tell me if you've actually interacted with this. I'm curious, um, but like the idea that like some mycorrhizae, like when they, they'll colonize, first of mm-hmm. all, a plant can be colonized by multiple Endophytes and, and mutualists right. in the root zone, right? And sometimes, sometimes that's beneficial for the plant, and other times it actually taxes the plant because yep. Yep. all none of these relationships are like I say, free lunches, right? Yep. I think it was a very common, very commoner. I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but a very uh, important ecolo- ecologist kind of talked about the like the eco and yeah. ecology and the eco and economics are the same. right <laughs> Or acus or whatever from Greece, right? Greek, and you know it's 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 uh, those interactions cost resources. Something,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: And they can even negatively affect the plant because maybe it maybe it requires the plant to have a certain kind of immune response to 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 mediate this, or or maybe it doesn't even have the genes that allow it to receive. A host, right, that maybe right. a wild ancestor was able to a long time ago. And we're learning about that too, domestication and what that's done uh, to those factors. So like when people say to me, oh, well, my domesticated crop that I got from wherever, of course, it's going to have this interaction with all this native microbiota. I have to ask, how do you know that? And like you say, how did you confirm that?
2: Yeah. You know? Yep, And it's it's something that absolutely I've seen in, in some of the work that I did that... Um, You know, there's there's plenty of evidence in uh, scientific literature that show that mycorrhizal fungi, you know, they sometimes can help uh, increase biomass, you know, production and stuff in plants. But other other times, kind of like you're saying, it's it's more of like a fitness thing, you know, that mycorrhizal Mm -hmm. fungi can help plants be more fit in their environment, but that does not necessarily you know, correlate to production of things that humans are going to care about to harvest to use. And so, you know, that plant may survive very, very well, but yeah, that doesn't mean it's going to increase resin production or, you know, other things that you might be interested in. I think that's the distinction I don't really hear many people making.
0: I think I, I, I most like to point out the idea that, um, uh, like you just said very eloquently, like sometimes you you see the fact that even symbionts you can escape like when we grow plants like when, when humans took cannabis and other plants from where they were to other places mm-hmm. right, and they separated them from this microbiome that they were used to over thousands of years, right Hun- yep. you know those like you get situations even in that in nature where escaping from an environment where you had all these defenses. That are costly you know yep. over time you don't have to maybe they get exaptated to other to do other things sure those traits right. like, like a horn on a head can be used to plow the ground as much as stab an opponent right that being that being said though a lot of times if, if it's if you don't need it and it's costly and it mutates and then you lose it but you gain all these other mm-hmm. metabolic resources or 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 however that works it's very complicated right. how that can happen then you lose it and it's actually a net benefit for the plant so just that kind of blows people's mind the idea that like well what do you mean they wouldn't have the microbiome well yeah they might not have the they might not rely on that anymore and they might not need yep. it or at least in the same way
2: right and it relates to so many things like you know how readily available this is the big one for mycorrhizal fungi but how avail- bioavailable is phosphorus in the soil um and and that's just like the easiest example to point to but you know you go out into all sorts of of elements and things um that that drive the likelihood that some association may be formed or not and like you said once the association is made there's no guarantee that it's always going to be beneficial for the plant and the phosphorus example is an easy one that that anyone listening to this if you want to dive into research I mean you can go on google scholar and look up um mycorrhizal fungal research that's been done with phosphorus, you know, there's plenty of papers out there that have looked at this, um, where you can see that when things get to a certain point, um, if the phosphorus and carbon levels and things get to a certain ratio, a certain degree, you know, that fungus will start pulling more from the plant than the plants getting from it. And you'll start to see the plant start to, you know, it, it becomes a pathogen. It's the plant starts to look like it's stressed. Um, And so, yeah, it's it's such an important nuance that these things aren't static. You know, we're dealing with living systems. This is literally some of the most complex stuff uh, that we know of. I mean, because we're still learning every day about all of these little interactions. Um, So, yeah, no, I'm really glad you pointed that out, this this whole idea of of symbiosis is um, it's it's not just necessarily a, a net positive for the plant. And, um, and it's not a static thing either. And it's, this is another thing I wanted to talk to you about. I'm so glad that we've connected because I've been wanting to have these conversations with you. How do you feel about the, the concept of a beneficial organism in IPM strategies? You know, people talk about beneficial insects and stuff. um, Because we're, you know, we're switching gears now we were just talking about like fungus and, and microbiology and how talking about beneficials is sort of a tricky thing but do you see that also extend upwards into uh into animals into um insects and things as well where that kind of level of, of beneficialness uh can vary absolutely
0: and if people want a really cool thing to to look up if they're thinking like nah mycorrhizae they're usually good or all these other microbes look up a, a, a an interesting observation called mycorrhiza-induced susceptibility in this yes. case to viruses so like you know having this interaction you know you're and you're and you said you're right this mutualism under certain maybe under certain taxing circumstances like if it's water stressed or if mm-hmm. it's uh, heat stress or if it's arid whatever uh those very or, or herbivore damage or pathogen stress. Yes. Yeah. Like all yeah. these things that can cause so the plant has to, of course, defend itself and maintain all these relationships and all of that costs energy and resources and what you can, what, what ends up happening is you do move from mutualism to parasitism contextually, like you're saying. And so far as your point about beneficials, it's necessary sometimes to simplify it this way. And sometimes mm-hmm. interactions from a cultivator perspective are really, at the end of the day, mainly good yeah. or bad but so like for certain insects, but, um, you know, don't think that the microbiome only works for you and your plants. It definitely doesn't. Um, one of the reasons why insects and, uh, mites and things are so successful is because they, um, they do themselves have a pretty nice microbiome aphids, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, they rely Buchnera, Sriracha, um, And there are a few other, you know, symbionts and other hemitera and other insects that allow them to break down or make or even generate amino acids that they normally wouldn't be able to because their diet is so specialized, perhaps like for aphids on phloem sap. Phloem sap is actually, a and blood for that matter, for insects and other organisms that feed on blood. It's a very um, kind of a unique food source and it requires a highly specialized body that can like make up for what you don't get typically in like other diets um and uh yeah i think that it's a it's a major mistake to not consider things like you know the bacteriophages in your gut for example for gut mm-hmm. health the bacteriophages mm-hmm. and other viruses in the soil in your plants in the insects that might not even necessarily be pathogenic to yeah. the plant itself but are in this sort of um the symphony, this orchestra yes, of yes. of interactions, right? It's a it would be a major blunder to not consider that complexity, especially for people who are very interested in uh, sustainable agriculture and living soil and mm-hmm. uh, and, and these sorts of um, you know uh, these attempts to sort of synergize with the environment, which I think is very important.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I you know and that's a reminder too because sometimes when I teach about some of this stuff um, folks can sometimes get frustrated because if you're like challenging ideas constantly it's sort of like well what do I have to work with and yeah um, and so to point out that the whole goal of all of this to work through this and think critically about all of this is to get to what we're all trying to get to anyway which like you said is this you know how do we work with the environment how do we work with ecosystems and these things in the most um, intentional mindful way that we can um so that we you know we can can get along better and as you know in your you know consulting and working with people what are some of the primary mistakes that even maybe you yourself have made and that you see other people's making people making uh when they're kind of diving into this world of beneficial insects and everything and trying to um you know get these these what at the time will be very new processes to them uh, getting them integrated and coming out of kind of the old way of thinking of just focusing on pesticides. I
0: think that uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I want to bemoan things like the fact that a lot of people don't take the time to just prepare themselves or be aware of <laughs> But in a way, it's kind of hard to complain because that's asking somebody to be aware of something they might not even be aware of.
2: Right. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. You
0: don't know what you don't know. Right. But um, I think it's very valuable for people to take that time to actually learn what are the potential pitfalls? What are these pests that I might be able to deal with? It's amazing to me, but I'm biased that like people are out there saying like, oh, well, I just won't get pests. Not a problem. (laughs) It just won't happen. I'll just be really good. (laughs) <laughs> and i think that's a little bit a little humorous because but some places you can actually and i've definitely been to places where that has happened because they just live in an environment mm-hmm. where it's yeah. usually an arid environment a little scraggly like uh where i live i'm very close to the sort of the coastal shrub chaparral yeah parts yeah. of southern california so i get it it can be very scrubby and um you know even it's not a lot of pressure Exactly, or or like a lot of the plants can't host them very well. Like they're very, um, they're not like crop plants that are luscious and and a little bit more easy to eat. So that does happen, absolutely. I don't want to discount that, but uh, I don't think it's most people's interaction. And certainly, it's not great if you do get pests afterwards. Um, But not to bogart that point too much. Another big one would be uh, just not just going with something. You know, a lot of these are actually not unique to IPM. Like threat model appropriately. That's true for any business. Um, you know, don't fall for the marketing. That's true for every business. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so maybe this isn't super unique to IPM, but, um, I think it's, it's a big, it's true. Like people don't like to pay for security until after they yeah. get, um, robbed or something happens to them and, and they realize that that is a very big deal. And, um, whether it's humans or pests or, or insects, there's some sort of pest trying to mess with your plant uh, <laughs> at different various echelons, and and uh, I'll leave the metaphor at that.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a good point. That you know, the the types of consideration that you would put into the development of any important process in your business um, that IPM deserves that same sort of attention and careful. Um, Thinking and um, one thing that that's jumped into my mind is what do you see um, as unique problems for indoor versus outdoor grows? Because I you know I I know from experience doing indoor growing versus outdoor growing you know that you see very different pest pressures and and things like that.
0: Yeah, and I suppose if I would be a little bit more detailed, uh, resources just generally just having like a dedicated uh, crop scout. Or, mm-hmm. or a team mm-hmm. cross training that team indoor or outdoor, um, and then giving like real credence to the, to yeah. the resources necessary to like to prevent and, and doing preventative measures because you know that those things um, are going to pan out. Uh, so of course, that's a that would be one example kind of from before. Um, but uh, moving forward, indoor versus outdoor, well, a big one is, of course, your exposure to the local environment. Um, know pests don't come out of nowhere they don't spontaneously um you know develop they don't just spawn they uh they come from somewhere and they ingress (laughs) into your location so your number one primary thing no matter whether it's indoor or outdoor is you know be able to control that cultivation space and the space around it what are some plants around that could be hosting those pests like you can do all the treatments preventative and otherwise do you want, but if you're not looking like five meters from your door.
2: If you're ushering them in constantly, then it's not. Right, yeah,
0: yeah. and so so having that tunnel vision, having those um, strategic blind spots are pretty common in my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a big thing, you know, just being aware of the environment out of you, being conscious of being mindful of it is super important. Yeah. Uh, either way but uh, in indoor environments of course you have more physical barriers and uh, that can also lead you to feel like um i would say like uh you could be you could develop a false sense of security sometimes yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. certainly um and, and it's also easy to get um complacent uh, it yep. is true in all, in all cases right especially when it's difficult and hard but um complacency is a thing that you have to fight constantly, no matter what, uh, certain pests that are really problematic, uh, by which I mean that you, you're actually liable to have crop loss, not just product loss, but actual mm-hmm. like plant loss. Um, I, I think are much more common, especially in the, North America, uh, with like the budworm moths that people are dealing with, like the hemp or these larger moths that, um, if you have like a, a indoor facility, you're probably not getting too much because of the yeah. walls and everything. Kind of obvious, but um, you know, the pressure from like the corn earworm moth uh, and the hemp Eurasian hemp borer have been massive lately, especially the last few years. I was
2: going to um, ask like about did... that. If it's like kind of changed, it seems like it's it's been the case. I've heard heard more and more about it than I ever did like six, seven, eight years ago.
0: Yeah, and even for myself, I I mean, I can totally speak from my personal experience, but I'm not everywhere always, so I also rely on that data and information from others, and a lot of it is, unfortunately, actually, a lot of it's anecdotal, and I wanted to talk about this too, is that Mm -hmm. sort of the infrastructural support for pests aren't there as well, so it's kind of hard to, in some cases, um, blame the cultivator too much in that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of people just even if you even if you find out about the pests or that they exist, the information specific to cannabis is oftentimes not there, yeah. and so and that's changing right now. But yeah, pest pressure for the budworm moths is increasing. Cannabis safe is increasing. Of course, everyone talks about the hoplite and viroid, which is yeah. a, a major catastrophe in my opinion, and is probably going to get worse before it gets better, uh, because of that lack of infrastructural support, which I wrote about recently. In a not a book that I wrote entirely, but a chapter mm-hmm. about uh, organic farming and uh, for cannabis and also about the viruses in cannabis, we're learning more about those.
2: Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because I know just with Hoplite and Viroid being such a, um, a really big issue right now, some folks listening may not be familiar with what's going on with that. Um, do you mind just very briefly kind of summarizing? Um, you know what it is and what we've been seeing especially in uh, across northern california Um uh, and in my world in the testing side of things you know it's been a there's been a huge push towards developing better uh more reliable methods for identification and that sort of thing um so yeah, let's let's unpack that just a little bit in case anyone's unfamiliar because it's a big big topic
0: absolutely so a long time ago, cannabis and hops used to from, or evolved from a, the same ancestor about 30 million years ago. Uh, fast forward to now, uh, humans have been cultivating both for quite a long time, and perhaps we even observed this before, but we never really knew. Yeah. But, but essentially, hopline viroid is a sort of a circular strand of RNA uh, that uh, can infect. Now, viroids are like this they're like viral agents and and Mm -hmm. it's a little bit murky to describe, but essentially this pathogen get moved from hops to cannabis or was already nascent in the population. Mm -hmm. We're not sure, but because these plants are so well-related, it's kind of makes sense that the hopling viroid that affected hops and, and, um, and, uh, humulaculture or humulaculture, uh, to, um, to, to cannabis would, would happen. And the way that the hops, uh, growers dealt with it is that they didn't sort of hmm. they decided to go with a uh, resistant cultivars and that and that really I see. um that is how this is how they mitigate that 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 threat whereas in cannabis um, there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to do this uh, potentially and also even if you wanted to do it again like hops had massive amounts of agricultural infrastructure to yeah. create breeding projects um, that were no joke serious about this, that spent dozens of millions of dollars into it. And yeah. um, and even then, you still have to maintain it because resistances can wane,
2: yeah. uh,
0: virulence can increase in the pathogen. Uh, you know, it's not one and done. Right, you have to all.
2: do long-term monitoring. Yeah.
0: 100%. And that's another thing people fail to um, account for, recognize Uh, again, when we talk about resistance and immunity and tolerance and that those mean different things. So hop latent viroid has now become, um, seemingly according to certain reports, um, very, very, very widespread. And the problem is that it is, it has what's called viral latency, which means that you don't always see the symptoms after you get the infection. And even then the way that we test for hop latent viroid, uh, you know, I think that, Um, certain sort of thought leaders in the industry are, you know, questioning that certain methodologies don't make sense over others. And I think QPCR is, um, one that's, uh, maybe more appropriate because viral load is a little bit complex and I'm not a virologist or a molecular biologist for that matter. So I, I don't know if I can speak with perfect authority about this, but what I understand sometimes you can get false positives and false negatives. And mm-hmm. so qu- having a quantifiable PCR is a lot better, or quantitative, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, I know it's been freaking a lot of people out, because um, like you said, it seems to be very um, widespread. And it's, it's one of those things of, you know, this type of infra- infrastructure that you, you keep talking about is, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things I keep thinking about is like, gosh, you know, it'd be nice if we had a big validated data set to make decisions from and assess you know the extent of these problems and we don't have the luxury of that unfortunately we're collecting information from you know what's made available from people getting tests with third-party labs or you know whatever and sharing the results or identifying it just by um you know, uh, trying to treat it all sorts of other ways and not finding a solution and sort of just saying it's hoplite and viroid. And, and, and then it's like, well, is it? Is it not? Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, it is it is cannabis cultivation in general does face this huge deficit of just validated data sets and uh, and like you said, infrastructure that allows for widespread mobilization efforts to try to deal with potential um potential threats or you know issues that come up that maybe require intensive breeding to try to find solutions for or you know require um intensive uh trials you know that we need multiple people across different areas of the country to be working on so we understand the role environments and all these other things play into it um so it is it's it's a fascinating state that the cannabis industry is in you know that uh it's like the industry is at this level of maturity where it's kind of gaining widespread acceptance but it still doesn't have those really basic tools available um to navigate really big problems which is just a weird time it's just a weird thing to kind of be a part of and to see
0: yeah i have to agree um it might be our like phylloxera yeah. you know situation like with the grapes Yeah. And, uh, you know, it'll come to a head. And I think, and like, and you brought up a really massively important point, which is that the symptomology of Hoplane thyroid is super, um, uh, not innocuous, but, uh, well, can be kind of innocuous. But the word I'm trying to look for is um, uh, ambiguous. Yes. Yeah. So you don't know, even, so not only do the symptoms happen late, but they also don't even happen in a way that's very uh, (laughs) descriptive. You know, you're not totally sure, like it's not definitive, Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas certain other kinds of like, even like other viruses, like Lizchlerosis virus Mm -hmm. or um, B. Curly top virus, which are also found and incredibly damaging in many other crop plants. Right. So those plants also have those symptoms are very uh, overt and you can tell kind of what you're getting Um, still also very lethal to the plant. Uh, But people have been blaming all kinds of things that we might not have names for yet Hemp phytoplasmas are another one, Mm -hmm. which is brewing the curling of the leaves, the dudding that people are talking about, you know, the fact that people are defining things on ambiguous terminologies and not, um, you know, more rigorous or sort of specific things is kind of frightening because it means that, you know, people can make, mistakes that will be costly for them and other people
2: yeah exactly and it makes you wonder about you know especially when we talk about viruses and plants how they're getting spread and sort of possible unintentional spread and things that come from just not being aware of um you know what you're handling and and what's at stake you know i think back to um when i was first um, helping build the first lab that I worked in that that focused on cannabis. I remember we were getting a lot of people coming to us asking about uh, tobacco mosaic virus and wanting testing on that, you know, and that was a big controversial thing. And uh, back then there was this whole thing about how do you differentiate uh, viral infections from nutrient deficiencies and you know, it was a big thing. You know, I'm thinking about that. And that was like 2013, 2014 or so. Um, there were big arguments going around that. And back then, there really wasn't uh, very sophisticated testing methods available. You know, medicinal genomics had not yet developed a lot of things that they have available now to um, do testing. Um, and some of the other companies hadn't really done much other than like sex testing and, and that sort of thing. And it makes me wonder, like, you know, how far back um, this problem actually goes and these things that people are wondering, is it tobacco mosaic virus, which has not really ever been confirmed in cannabis. There's like a hemp mosaic virus and, you know, and other things, um, makes you wonder if some of that was hoplite and viroid, even, you know, back then, but as we've gotten better tools to measure these things, assess, and, and then as the industry's gotten bigger and, and, you know, things have evolved, um, You know, we're starting to get some insight into some of these things, like even uh, curly beet top virus, like that wasn't even thought of to affect cannabis as far as just like five years ago or so. Uh, So a lot of this stuff when we talk about viruses is fairly new as far as the level that we understand it today versus a few years ago.
0: Absolutely. And I'm actually very surprised, uh, especially in the case of the curly top virus. Uh, Perhaps people have observed it, but just didn't know what it was. Um, Right. I have I have to believe that that must have happened at some point because BCTV is uh, globally super present and it would not be surprising to me. And actually, uh, you know, you would ask earlier about like even mistakes that i had made. I'll actually share with you one myself, um, which is related to the tobacco mosaic virus sort of debate. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people would often tell me, you know, uh, you know, Matt, there's this there's like studies in like, uh, books and like McPartland books and such things like that, and Clark and all these other folks. Um, there was a hardwood study in particular that, uh, talked about various, uh, mosaic viruses, but it was like mm-hmm. in the late sixties or seventies. And the way that we characterize viruses are very different than the way that you do yeah. them now. And so I, I just want, I just felt like it, it, it would be way better to just have that more specific, precise, up-to-date information. Um, but I always said that, uh. Supposedly, people are finding tobacco mosaic virus or, sort of, so, so supposedly in yeah. uh, um, uh, uh, kits and things like this that are meant to find it in plants. And so, perhaps there is something to that a little bit. But, um, but the reason why I'm always so hesitant or what I've always said is that I wouldn't be surprised tobacco mosaic virus infects tons of things, hundreds <laughs> of plants. Right. BCDV infects hundreds of plants. Um, they're that that are not very closely related, so it has um, yeah. It's very good at this, so I wouldn't. So like I always said, I wouldn't be surprised. I just didn't see the evidence necessarily, and also with viruses, you know, um, the strains can be different, and that can yes. cause a yep. big change in how you even detect them. Yep. Um, and uh, again, this is also not totally my wheelhouse, but uh, it is something to consider. The creamy virus list. chlorosis virus is known because it has um, I think if I remember correctly, there's a bipartite uh, I believe it's genome, right? So it's like there's there's two like I don't know the correct shape off the top of my head, but basically there mm-hmm. are parts that can like split and recombine mm-hmm. or pseudo-recombine. Okay. And and um that can cause even apparently other creamy viruses to like uh, what's the word link for it? Well, you can transfer a lot of genes horizontally this way. Certain resistances, certain virulence traits can be passed on, especially if they get to be infecting the same plant and you have some yeah, of this combination yeah. happening. So that kind of stuff, like if you don't acknowledge that it's a thing, like can you assess it in the field? Probably not. But yeah. if you know that, doesn't that change fundamentally how you're going to attack that objective? Like if you if right, you know. Right. Right, if you know that that virus can become much more virulent, you know, maybe it's still like, okay, well, it's still a threat, all right, well, it didn't really change that much, I guess so, but like, it means that <laughs> even if you're dealing with resistances, and even if we develop yep. resistances in these plants, then those can be degraded, and I guess I just want people to recognize that up front, because I don't want people thinking that they're invulnerable when they're not, because that's how, that's how you make costly decisions.
2: Absolutely, yeah, Absolutely. And, you know, it's spinning all of this into, you know, we're we're really getting into like more kind of like modern stuff. One thing I wanted to pick your brain about before we have to wrap up in a few minutes is what are some concepts that are kind of uh, that you're finding most exciting these days that you've been diving into? Um, You know, because we've covered a lot of basic stuff, but I did want to make sure to carve out time to find out um, kind of more on the cutting edge of things, what's got you excited these days? What are you reading a lot about and and really diving into? Oh,
0: I love that you asked the question. Because um, <laughs> I don't, I, honestly, it's, a, it's, high, it's sort of high concept stuff and um, I don't want to toot my own horn or anything like this, but uh, a lot of people find it kind of dry and I get that. Um, sure, so I, I, that, I, I get the too. same
2: thing from people, don't worry. <laughs> I try not
0: to inflict it on people is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I actually dig it myself, not anyone else. <laughs> but um, uh, I've been very fascinated. Uh, I post a lot even on Instagram recently about, and also with my YouTube channel about like, like I was saying earlier, sort of the gene, genetic resistance traits. What is genetic resistance? What is plant health? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I think, uh, um uh, you know, somebody has said it recently. I really, I really resonated with the description of it as like an emergent property. It's not like a thing yeah, that you intrinsically yeah. have. You just are resistant or aren't resistant. It's not like that. It's it's a it's a confluence of many factors and context. Yes. And that's the boring answer to so many things. Um, but it's true. And so yeah. I've been very fascinated with the research of like the deep ecology of like the Glomeromycota and the plants. Uh, and like the, yeah,
2: glomaline. you know,
0: yeah, and like endosymbiosis and how, you know, microbes, I like to call them, they're like the mercenary, they're like the mercenary immune system strategy. Yeah, Instead of having yeah, like yeah. white blood cells and things that like we have, they just outsource. <laughs> yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. In a way, you know? yeah, I like that. And, um, and also the, like, I, I really like the ecological uh, research that goes over, like i was saying earlier the microbes and insects that can even be transferred to plants sometimes beneficial mm-hmm. sometimes detrimental yeah. um the fact that like herbivory and even like the timing of herbivory can have can modulate the uh, microbiome oh, in the soil yeah so wow. like i said the the plant soil feedback is really striking to me um it it uh, you know so, so the idea that like the plant the next generation of plants in that area, at least in these experiments, right, mm-hmm. are showing that that they're actually affected, kind of kind of similar to like how, um, you know, epigenetically, and sometimes even through the germline. I think like like stressors, like like people have taken research of folks who have been through very stressful mm-hmm. uh, environments, like humans grandparents to parents to progeny and we have seen those stress levels and the genes that relate to those stress uh responses uh be at increased levels right and the same thing happens in plants the same thing happens in insects the same thing happens in fungi and all these other organisms down to the virus and i think if you're serious about living soil or if you're serious about uh harmonizing and synergizing with the environment if you're not considering the viruses if you're not considering the just that environmental DNA that just gets excreted out of the root zone and, and yeah. other sorts of things. Yes. If you're not considering all of these facets um, that complicate it, then I don't think you're really considering the whole picture, which is, of course, hard to think about, but um, it's there whether you want to think about it or not, I guess.
2: Yeah, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And we should never be... <laughs> We should never be put off from trying to wrestle with really complex ideas, even when we know that they're so immensely complex, we can't totally understand them, Um, because we still learn, even when we push ourselves and challenge ourselves to um, dive into that. I had a a psychology professor that used to always say, before she would dump a mountain of work on top of us, that in general you know you walk away with about 60% of what you learn or you know engage with and everything you know at best usually you'll mm-hmm. take around 60% of that and walk away with it and of course that was her rationale for giving us a whole bunch of work to do and uh, this idea that the 60% that we walk away from will be bigger uh, yeah <laughs> but I, I that did stick with me um and it's something that even in my teaching I try to point out to people like these really hard ideas complex ideas like don't don't feel that they're beyond you like they're there for anyone to dive into and explore and it just starts with the first steps of diving in and reading and finding concepts you don't understand and then learning about those concepts and coming back and you know it's this reiterative process and so um you know I I I hope that everyone Listening feels um, encouraged to you know seek out these nuances and complexities and to to try to better understand them and hopefully by pointing out some of these little things about um you know symbiosis and about mycorrhizal fungi and beneficial insects and all these things you know and the complexities that can accompany them that it it just encourages people to learn more and and I'm glad you brought up living soil because you know we've really pressed on a lot of definitions in our talk like what is plant health what is you know pest resistance uh what is even integrated pest management you know I have a question i have what is living soil like what does that mean to people um that concept and i'm so glad mm-hmm. that you you know so nicely you know pointed out that if you're not thinking about viroids and other things um that are going on uh then you're you're not quite um Taking into account everything that goes into that, um, so yeah, I just want to say I really, really appreciate your perspective, and I hope that everyone listening uh, today, you know, recognizes just how much complexity there is to all of this, and um, and we'll start to seek out, uh, you know, to understand those things more. Um, and so, as we wrap up, you know, usually in the last few minutes, I like to give our guests kind of the final um, words. So. Um, as as we conclude and you share final thoughts, um please let folks know um you know where to find you, um your YouTube channel, um, everything. I want to make sure to plug um, as much as your stuff as possible um so that people can take these concepts and start to uh to try to learn more about them. Um so with that I'll stop my rambling. And uh Matthew, you have the floor. Feel free to close us out and let everybody know how to learn more about all the stuff that we've been Kind of talking about today.
0: Uh, thank you, Jason. I I really appreciate the way that you put that, and I'll try not to add too much to that. Just to say that um, I I even feel like some of these concepts are actually maybe the details of how they happen is complicated, mm-hmm. but actually I feel like a lot of the major concepts, even the bigger ones that are new, are actually kind of hard easy to understand. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, you know, and, and and I think and I and that's why I agree with you one hundred and ten percent that. Um, Uh, I think these people who might feel like, oh, we're just trying to say that we shouldn't use these microbes or you're just trying to attack a product or how could mycorrhizae be bad? (laughs) Take a look. There are ways. The world, we put names on the world to order it for us. The world has no reason to, you know, it doesn't work backwards, right? Yeah. And um, on that note, if you want to find more information about that, you can check out my Xenthanol YouTube channel where I post the majority of the content that, um, that, that, I, that I really care about enough to make a video out of. Uh, and then you can find a lot of my other research-backed stuff um, on my Instagram, SyncAngel, S-Y-N-C-H-A-N-G-E-L. You can also find me on Twitter, at SyncAngel, And I've I've made many, many contacts with many uh, scientists, even people who, honestly, are people who I admire quite a bit on Twitter. So I recommend just turning Twitter into a feed for scientists and, and other people you really like um, in that way, maybe save it from the drama. And then also, yeah, exactly. Hey, you can also, um, if you're seeking a professional uh, consultation with myself, if you're interested in that information, anything, I can help you out. You can also find me on zenthanol.com where you can contact me with your situation and I can uh, uh, hopefully help you out. And I look forward to our mutual success.
2: Perfect. Well, Matthew, thanks so much. And you know, honestly, we just scraped the surface here. So um, I hope that in the future we have more conversations. There's so much more to go into and and unpack and explore. Um, but it's been great finally connecting with you. I'm I'm really stoked that our paths have crossed and uh, and that now we we have that connection established. And yeah, I look forward to following your stuff and and learning along with you. I saw you're you're in our Discord as well. Um, so um yeah just look forward to funneling more people your way and uh, look forward to seeing how things evolve with you so thanks so much for taking the time today thanks jason i appreciate it all right everybody thanks so much for tuning in if you want to learn more about curious about cannabis just go to cacpodcast.com or uh, find us on facebook instagram linkedin twitter or youtube and just search for curious about cannabis and you should find us with that everybody stay curious and take it easy bye
1: If you're curious about cannabis like me, then get connected to the Curious About Cannabis ecosystem and let's learn together. Visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to join our learning community on our Discord server. And you can participate in regular giveaways, dive into the latest cannabis research, Connect with certified Curious About Cannabis educators, hang out in our break room with other curious minds, and more. Best of all, it's totally free. Just visit cacpodcast.com connect to learn more. Or click connect on the Curious About Cannabis app, which is available on Android and coming soon to iOS.